Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 385 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find a bunch of fantastic writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, my partner in crime and also author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, plus lots of other books. And it's so glad, I'm so glad to have Alison back because we had that little summer break where she, you know, went and did summer things. Um, but yes. <laughs> like structural edits. <laughs> very summary, I find. Incredibly summary. How are you, um, Al? I'm all right. I'm here. I'm back again. I didn't yes, run away yes. after last Yay. week, so that's a good start, right? I've, I've returned to the fold. I'm back amongst you in your embrace, your loving embrace. <laughs> I would just like to say thank you to all of those people who, you know, sent messages or tweeted to say how pleased they were to have me back, so that was a good feeling. Yay! <laughs> none anyway, more pleased than me. <laughs> none more pleased than Valerie, who doesn't have to talk to herself anymore. <laughs> hard talking to yourself actually yeah it really is I, um so book boy my son has a radio mm. program community radio program and he does cool. it with another another mate of his and the two of them go in and you know riff off each other and have a lovely time but he's had to do it on his own a couple of times because his friend wasn't available or whatever and um talking to yourself for an hour whilst mm. playing music is really difficult and he sort of yes. comes out at the end every time goes that was a lot harder than when JD is here. And I'm like, well, yes, of course it is because mm. you're, you've got nothing to bounce off. You're, having, you're basically having a conversation with someone who is not in the room, mm. um, which is not easy. Not easy. Not easy. But anyway, Anywho. let's move on to the world of writing and publishing, shall we? Let's do that. Why not? Well, I want to highlight a post that is on the Australian Writers' Centre blog, but uh, what it is, it's a list of a whole bunch of short story competitions that you can enter in 2021. And I think this is great because, you know, like I reckon eight years ago, even maybe even five years ago, but certainly eight and more years ago, um, the list of short story competitions was so short. It there were there were just so much fewer so that probably doesn't even make sense. So much fewer. That was (laughs) great grammar. (laughs) Great word choice. (laughs) There were just a lot um, less interest in short stories across the board. And it's had a resurgence, it's had a renaissance, and now there are lots of short story competitions because, um, and that's great because then it's such a good thing to enter A, to have a practice of a deadline, B, to have an actual purpose to write your short story because you're actually doing it for something, and C, the fact that you might get shortlisted, which is an achievement in itself, but D, you might win. So, you might win. <laughs> and often you win money or something you know of value um so I just think it's fantastic that we've got this renaissance in short stories and there's a whole bunch of different ones um on on this post of course there's furious fiction which of course is the very much very short story the short short story competition because the word limit is 500 words and it starts on the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m. and closes 55 hours later which is midnight on Sunday this is all Sydney Melbourne time 
Um, the word limit's 500 words and entry is free. But if you win, you can win $500 cash. Not $500 worth of something, $500 cash in your bank account. Um, and, of course, the shortlisted favourites are also published um, on our blog. So it's a great uh, little one if you're just dipping your toe in the water. But there's a bunch of other great ones too, aren't there, Al? There are. And, you know, the great thing about this list, let's put as many greats as we can into yeah, great, this great, great. entire thing. Yeah, mm, mm. Um, The great thing about this great list is that it's um, updated. We are adding to them as we get more. And so, so keep um, you, might, you might get there at the moment and think, wait a minute, the first five, you know, the, the, date, the date's gone by for them. But there'll be m- new ones added all the time. So it's worth mm-hmm. actually um, – what do you call it? Bookmarking the post, yes. this great post, and um, and going um, coming back to it, going with that because some of them, of course, are also you know ongoing. So there's a storython for kids, which is a free mm. online event which challenges kids from year three to eight to write micro stories, and that sort of um, closes at the end of each school term, and it's a 100 word limit, you know, for for kids writing stories. So there's you know we've got short story um, competitions for different age groups and all sorts of different things, but um, as you say, there are more and more of them all the time and so it you know it's a good to be able to find them in one place yeah absolutely all right so now let's move on to an excellent post that you found Al I really like this one I did and it's from a community member it's from Kylie Orr um O-double-R and she wrote this post um on her in her LinkedIn blog or post or whatever you call it um Mm -hmm. and it's called six tips for your author photo shoot now Mm -hmm. Kylie um, excitingly, has a novel, her debut novel coming Yay! out in, I know, in mid-2022. It's called The Fundraiser. And so she's obviously like, you know, doing all the right things, working hard to build her author platform. And one of the things that she's done is gone and got herself some author photos. Now, author photo shoots are, you know, you will have heard my stories of them. They're a bit of a trial (laughs) if you do not love having your photo taken. Um, Mm. And it's also that whole thing of like just getting it right. Like what kind of shots do you need? Mm. Um, Where do you get them? What kind of, you know, who's going to take them for you? Um, So she's got six tips and her first tip, and I do agree with this, um, is to use professionals oh, because we do sense. see a lot of, um, like, give yourself the best shot to be happy that this photo, like, and I can tell you, like, take it from me, mm. this photo is going to go everywhere. This photo is going to be in the back of your book. This photo is going into magazines. It will accompany any blog post that's ever written about you. It will be on your website. It will be everywhere and you have to like it. Mm. Um, And don't be like me and only get them done about once every six years so that you, you know, like people, you turn up to things and people don't recognize you. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, Get them done relatively regularly. But get, Mm. I, I have to say that if you it's worth paying the money to get someone to do it properly for you. And I would also suggest um, that getting someone to do your hair and makeup is also, it's really like, again, it doesn't, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money. There's a lot of people out there that can, you know, that that don't charge a huge amount and it will make a big difference. Um, Mm. Get it done. It really does make a difference um, to how you're how you, how just how you feel about that photo yeah. going out there? I mean, you know, yeah. like there, there's 
you know, Tristan Banks, I don't think, has ever done his, had his hair and makeup done in his life outside of um, a home and away. And there are mm-hmm. some of us who don't need it, but there are others of us, and I put my hand up in that section, who do. So use professionals where you can and where you can afford it and ask around. Like the best way to find those people is to ask other authors, ask around, look for someone, you know, within your, like set a budget, look for someone within that budget. Um, and just get the best that you can for your budget, I think, is the way forward, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I and bring more outfits than you think because some of them are not going to translate well yeah. once you've actually taken the shot and it's just not yeah. going to look good for some reason. So bring more outfits so that you have um, – you have them spare, absolutely. And I well, just Kylie, think that... And Kylie, some, Kylie's advice, she's got yeah. a couple of tips here that I really liked. One of them was to send pics of what you like. So mm. if there are author photos out there that you really like, send those photos because Definitely. it'll get it'll give your photographer send the an photographer, idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Send them to the photographer, I mean. Mm. Um, and I think her third tip is also a very good one, is to wear clothes that give you shape. Oh, yeah. Because there might totally. be things that you love and feel comfortable in, mm. but when you actually see the photos, you, you won't love them. Like one of those, for example, that Kylie said was she had loose sort of billowy dresses that she loves, but they look like shapeless sacks, you know. Yes. And, I mean, for me, uh, uh, you know, the blazer, the a, a collar and a and a – and a shirt and a you know blazer are always going to probably work better for you doesn't really matter yes. what vibe you're going for and i and she also says block color, colors are great mm. and i a thousand percent agree with that because if you've got a particularly busy pattern and that mm. photo goes everywhere people just kind of people it's so instantly recognizable that people just kind of think oh has she got another shirt you know <laughs> or has she got another dress Where, whereas if it's a block color people don't even think you know, yeah, they don't recognise it. So definitely, um, yeah, it's a really good post actually. I think it's a great idea that Kylie did this. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's also really interesting because her last tip is be kind to yourself and she says that when the proofs came back she felt deflated because she's kind of expecting that she was going to look different to what she looked like. like <gasps> and it's quite interesting because I look at her photos and they're great. They're yeah. so great. And yet yeah. she's looked at her photos and gone, but, you know, but I don't look like a, a supermodel. I just sort of look, you know, a bit like myself, you know. And I, I think that um, it's really worth getting someone else to look at them for you or with you as well because you can never look at yourself without the criticism. And what yes, you need is for yes. someone else to look at them and go, actually, this photo makes you look amazing. And also I strongly suggest that when you are choosing the professional photographer, when you're looking at just because they're professional in taking, say, product shots, <laughs> doesn't mean they're going to be any good taking photos of people. So make no. sure you choose somebody who specialises in people because they understand how to just put, bring that extra 10% to make you look fab- fantastic. Just because somebody's the most fantastic, you know, landscape photographer in the world, does not mean they're going to take good shots of people. Um, and if you're still balking at the idea of getting proper shot, professional shots done, um, honestly, I cannot tell you the number of times I've asked for a shot from an author, you know, like if I'm writing about them as a journalist or whatever. And I had a guy once who sent me a photo of himself on holidays like in Bali with his mate, both of them shirtless. And it's like, really? It's really you quite a different vibe to what good... you're possibly after. <laughs> yeah, not particularly professional. And I've had another lady send me her wedding photo. Oh. 
because obviously that's the day she felt the most beautiful. But I'm like, I can't, this is your wedding photo. And she said, well, can't you use it? And I'm saying, but you're wearing a wedding dress. You've got a veil on. <laughs> exactly. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. You Think will get more coverage if you send appropriate shots. Yeah, very true. All right. We'll put the link in the show notes um, for those of you who are interested in reading the uh, um, article that Kylie wrote on LinkedIn. So our competition this week is we have three copies of The Four Wins by Kristen Hanna to give away. So um, just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions and you could win one of three copies. So a little bit about it, Texas 1934, Elsa Martinelli had finally found the life she'd yearned for, a family, a home and a livelihood on a farm on the Great Plains. But when drought threatens all, she and her community hold dear, Elsa's world is shattered to the winds. Fearful of the future, when Elsa wakes to find her husband has fled, she's forced to make the most agonising decision of her life, fight for the land she loves or take her beloved children west to California in search of better life. Will it be the land of milk and honey or will their experience challenge every ounce of strength they possess? A powerful story about the strength and resilience of women and the bond between mother and daughter by the multi-million copy number one best-selling author, Kristen Hanna. So entries close on the 15th of February. Uh, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Which brings us to, are you ready for the word of the week? Always. Always ready, Valerie. <laughs> this I'm... is a good one. Oh, well, really? they're all good. They're all good, actually. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking myself up too much, but they're all good. Prandial. P R A N D I A L. Prandial. I know what it means. <gasps> do you? I do. And do you know why okay. I know what it means? Because mm. I worked at Homes and Gardens in London, mm-hmm. and it was like one of those internal. How would they use um, it? You know, mag- magazine group. No, it was a joke. We would go for oh. pre-prandial or post-prandial, you know, oh. drinks a oh, lot. Oh, I see. Mostly, mostly pre-prandial and then we would never actually get to yes, the actual to, prandial. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can probably get from context what it's about. Like prandial sounds very practical perhaps or it almost sounds a bit like an accounting term. But according to the Macquarie Dictionary and from Alison's examples, it is an adjective relating to a meal, especially dinner. So you could say that the perfect pros- the perfect postprandial treat is banana pie. Chocolate. <laughs> and the perfect preprandial thing is probably a drink as long as you don't get yourself you know, to the point yes. of not getting to the perennial. Yes, yes. Good word, huh? Oh, oh awesome. I wonder, is it because cause you said that was at Homes and Gardens in the UK, mm. is it more in use, common use in the UK, do you think? No, I don't think so. It was just one of those, you know, groups of people have their own language and their yeah. own jokes and their own phrases that they use all the time and mm. it was just that was the phrase that we used in that particular group of people and of course we thought we were hilarious of course every of time course. every time <laughs> you know that's how it works oh, right? all right <laughs> <laughs> remember we used to work with people who like whenever they went to say to melbourne or even just mudgy they'd go oh i can't i'm out of the country 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Even though they, they weren't. Exactly. Right. Even though they weren't. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Freelance Writing at Stage 1. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week online course is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus learn about interview skills, industry expectations, and much more, and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Here's what Brad Kelly says. My name is Brad Kelly. I'm from Wollongong, and I'm a writer, uh, and I do a variety of work for corporates, the content writing for book publishers, and for private contracts and commissions. So I was a school teacher for 15 years before I decided to make the transition into full-time writing. I was in a position where I was writing and felt like a bit of a fraud and wasn't really sure what I was doing. So that's why I took the course at the Australian Writers' Centre. The course helped with, with pitching, the course helped with, um, I guess, confidence that it could be done, that was the biggest thing. Right? But what I was attracted to with Valerie is she made it sound so possible and there's lots of support and there's, and there's a sense that there's lots and lots of work out there for everybody. It's not competitive, it's a very supportive environment. That's been really beneficial for me. So my involvement with the Australian Writers' Centre has given me lots and lots of confidence to approach clients. Some of the companies I work with include Mack Trucks, UD Trucks, Volvo, uh, McDonald's I've written for, uh, a variety of uh, blogs for banks. So if I was going to recommend a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I would definitely say to start off with the news and magazine feature course because that's the entry course and that will just uh, generate lots and lots of ideas for you about where you want to go. So the Australian Writers' Centre really gave me the push that I needed to get my writing career going. Um, it taught me the nuts and bolts of it, of, of, of journalism and interviewing people and writing to briefs, uh, pitching, and it opened up a, a whole world of ideas that I wouldn't have been previously exposed to. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash freelance writing. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week, something a little bit different. So when I saw this book, I was just immediately intrigued. It's called What's It Like to Be Chased by a Cassowary? <laughs> Fascinating answers to perplexing questions. So it's actually a compilation of the most interesting explainers in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. So we're talking to Felicity Lewis, who is the National Explainer Editor. There's a thing, a National Explainer Editor mm. for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. She's worked in lots of titles like The Herald Sun, The Independent, The Melbourne Magazine, and has won several awards, including a coveted Walkley. So here she is, Felicity Lewis. So, Felicity, congratulations on this book. What's it like to be chased by a cassowary? <laughs> and Thanks, the sub <laughs> subtitle is Fascinating Answers to Perplexing Questions. Now, um, for readers, I just, as soon as I saw this book, I thought we've got to have a chat to Felicity. Can you tell <laughs> listeners uh, what the book is about? 
Well, the book's an anthology, so it's about many things. It's an anthology of pieces that are to do with Australian culture, things that are happening overseas, all sorts of different things, but what they all have in common is that they are questions about the world and they are explainers, which are a form of journalism um, that gives context to, to questions that come up in the news or questions about everyday life. Yes, so this book has been edited by you and each of the explainers or chapters have been written by other journalists. Now, the thing is you have had decades of experience in journalism and you Uh are now the National Explainer Editor at The Age and the City Morning Herald. But the word explainer, the concept of an explainer, hasn't always been around, has it? When do you think it kind of came about? Oh, I think that um, there there probably would have been pieces tagged from time to time as explainer, you know, over the years. Um, mm-hmm. and you could argue that journalism is supposed to be explanatory. It's well, supposed of course. to provide context, yeah. But in its, um, I, I think that since the internet has come into its own and people have been looking for their news online um, and on social media nowadays as well, uh, I think explainers have, have really become important because they, they help people join the dots when they're getting their news in, a, in quite a fragmented way. Mm. I mean, I think that uh, companies like Vox started off, you know, several years ago with their, that, their sole mission being to explaining the news um, and people might have seen their videos on, on Netflix now as well. Um, but it, so just in the last, I'd say, six, seven years or so, they've really yeah. taken off. And then the New York Times identified them as one of one of its trends that it thought was going to be important going forward in digital journalism. Mm. So it's mm. really dovetailed with the way that people consume news and also a little bit of a shift too in the way that journalists might consider writing news as well. So uh, in for, for an online audience that in a way that's a bit more direct and chatty, than they mm. once might have. Hmm. So what were you doing before you were National Explainer Editor? Uh, I was multimedia editor for, mm-hmm. for The Age and, uh, and The Herald and that was, that was a job where I was uh, a special features person, I suppose you'd say. I was managing special features online and that, was, that came about because of, well, I'd been working on the Melbourne magazine, um, mm-hmm. which was a, a lifestyle magazine. There was a Sydney magazine as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there was a kind of shift in, in online news um, with the production of a piece called Snowfall, um, which is a New York Times piece that um, was about an, an avalanche, really tragic avalanche that happened. And but it was done in a way for online that was really, really detailed and in-depth and clever and visual. Mm-hmm. And it had lots of um, side bits and different ways to navigate. And it proved to be a huge hit, so much so that there came to be used as a verb, you know, snow, to snowfall uh, in some newsrooms. So there was there was a kind of time when um, newsrooms started to double down on telling stories um, in a really innovative way online. And so it was my job to identify stories in the newsroom that we might want to tell in that way 
and to try to generate some ideas for stories that would lend themselves to being told in that way. Mm. Okay, so then now that you are National Explainer Editor, how do you decide what topics get explainers? Well, uh, some of them, I mean, every morning in the newsroom there's a morning conference where we talk about the news of the day and sometimes you know if I've heard the same topic come up a few times or I've read about it in the news I might um, put it put it to the group that this might be a good idea for an explainer normally it's when something snags in my mind that I just I've heard that and I don't really understand it but I'm kind of curious Mm. so um, even even on the level of I haven't studied economics but I kept hearing this term quantitative easing and I was just really curious as to as to what it actually meant. And so, you know, that's that's one of the the pieces in this in this mm-hmm. anthology is about quantitative easing, which is interesting, even if you're not, you know, a, a kind of economics person, because it's a very unusual thing for um, to to have happen in the world that that um, we've gone into a phase of, of um, quantitative easing. So um, sometimes readers will suggest ideas. Um, so there's another explainer that's in the anthology that was just a question that one of our readers emailed to me and said, I don't really understand where think tanks came from. Like, what are they? Who mm-hmm. thought of them? We, th- we hear about them all the time, but no one's actually, they're kind mm. of quoted in the news, but no one's gone behind them and said, you know, how did they come about? So mm. that, you know, that yielded a really interesting topic. So it's all sorts of things. And sometimes it's, I mean, it's like any editor with ideas, where do they come from? Or any writer with ideas, where do they come from? It's personal experience. Mm. It's questions that just surface in your mind. I think there's a certain way that you can go about your, how would I say, I'd call it grazing, grazing on uh, media and grazing on news stories and kind of looking out for stuff that piques your curiosity. Mm. So I do all that. I, I, I look at things that all I'm, I already think I always find interesting. You know, I listen to podcasts, I listen to radio shows, or read magazines that I always find interesting. But then within them, there are things that pique my curiosity further. Yes. So I can totally understand how somebody, and I'm looking at the contents page uh, of the book, how mm-hmm. how some how many people would think, well, who actually runs Antarctica? Or how much does it cost to have cancer? Or, of yeah. course, the thing we all wonder, how does Netflix know what we want to watch? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but does anyone really wonder, what's it like to be chased by a cassowary? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, yeah. Look, uh, fair enough. Um, that, that was uh, an explainer that came about because we were curious. That was uh, when I just come into doing the explainers a couple of years ago and we were curious to know what happens during certain human encounters with <laughs> with creatures um some creatures you know and so um it turned it turned out to be uh, a very interesting um interesting story and quite remarkable what does happen when you're chased by a cassowary and I, su- I suppose that sometimes we're just it, it's a it's a nice uh, curiosity peaking kind of device to get people to read further Mm. Now, this is an, an anthology, as you've mentioned, so it's been written by a bunch of different people. Um, now, is there some kind of format or specific requirements that you require in an explainer? Yeah, well, I mean, there's nothing 
you know, a, about explainers in general that, you know, there's no universal requirement other than mm. I suppose they explain what they say they're going to. But but the way that they've developed for me is that they have a certain format. They have a certain physical look, which is kind of important. So the way they appear, uh, they have a, a header that's different to, I'd say, a news story and a, a slight, slightly different formatting. And that's, uh, it's not formulaic, but it's very loose, but it's, it's, there's an introduction and you really need to show one of the things about the explainers, probably about writing in, with news is, is show relevance. So, so why, why would a reader want to keep reading? Why does this matter to them? And you really want to show that very early on. And then you also have a central question that you're really trying to unpack and it's helpful to have one central question that's kind of like the guts of the, the issue. And then from that, you get sub-questions that come out of it. Mm-hmm. So the explainers are broken up into uh, question other questions that follow. And hopefully they follow a bit like conversation. So mm-hmm. it's supposed to be, you know, that you really want to be talking to someone who's in the know about something. Um, and, of course, for a smart busy readers you know it's just that thing in the modern world we are interested Mm. in things but we can't be experts in everything so Mm. you know assume you're talking to someone who is expert in their field but they're just not across this particular topic and so so do you write them or do you you know um do the explainer writers write them Mm -hmm. as if the reader has zero knowledge or what level of knowledge Uh, are they assuming um they they're written in a way that um, I, I just say to the writers, don't assume knowledge. So don't assume mm. knowledge in a particular area. So that means that sometimes you have to take a few steps back. Um, so, I mean, you, you also, I mean, you could go back and back and back with things like that, couldn't you? You could keep a, someone had just landed on the planet kind of thing. So, yeah, sure. um, yeah. <laughs> So in a sensible way, we don't, we don't assume that people know what, who anybody is or what acronyms mm. stand for or anything like that or, or basic concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but, but, that is, but that is really important. Yes. And so um, are they written by, because obviously these have all appeared in the Agency in the Morning Herald, are they yeah. all, all of these written by staff writers or are some of them written by freelancers? Uh, there are a couple written by contributors. There's one on wine, mm-hmm. which is written by Max Allen, who's a fantastic, hilarious wine writer, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. That made me laugh a lot, that piece. Um, and he's he loves language as well. So it's, I mean, the, the, the explainer is actually what do, what do wine tasting notes really mean and um and he goes through the way that language is used to describe wine um and he looks at trendy terms and you know what's behind them and recommends a couple of trendy terms to use so that's that's one of them the only other one was um david assel who wrote about cryptic crosswords ah yes because he is the he is the man Yes, on words. And so you wrote Who Runs Antarctica? So let's take yeah. that one as an example. Maybe just take us through how that idea came about and then when you decided, oh, I'll write it, where did you start? <laughs> okay, so, well, 
I'll give you the the medium long answer. I okay. I studied <laughs> I studied um, in law at uni, so mm-hmm. um, I have an abiding kind of interest in international law. Mm-hmm. So that kind of um, pegged me a bit as um, as a, a potential candidate to write this piece because. You know, there's there are some areas um, areas of law, you know, anything in the world that um, doesn't f- fall into neat uh, reporting rounds. Mm. If you know what I mean. Mm. So um, it's not like we have a polar reporter or you know um, an Antarctica reporter. So <laughs> um, so I so I had written um, with my colleague Chris Sapone. We'd done one the year before on outer space. So how does the law in outer space work? So kind of interested in those far-flung places where humans are a bit um, maybe a bit vulnerable and they have to cooperate mm. and the normal uh, national rules don't apply so these special regimes of law have to be have to be brought into existence. Um, and it was 60 years since, since a treaty had been signed on, on Antarctica. So... It, it seemed a good time to to uh, examine how that was all working out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so I just um, how do I do? That's a good question. Yeah, I, where did I you guess start? I, I guess I step it out in my own mind and think what would what would what would I want to know? You know what what arises from this? And I've got mm-hmm. gotten quite quite proficient at it now that I can kind of wrap out some um, bullet points I guess and then but the thing is that I also um, I also really make sure that I've covered off covered things off and and don't leave questions unanswered as I go Mm. so yeah so you know um, and of course you speak to this is not just um, a googling exercise so Mm. it's reporting and Mm. so I spoke to experts and 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 that's the same as any any news or feature story that as you go you realize what what the questions are as a bit as well so but experts in what experts in antarctica or experts in international law or experts in what oh well one of them had been the head of the antarctic uh antarctic division mm-hmm. yeah so uh and uh, yeah experts in antarctica really there are right. And and in polar and in and in polar law because the Arctic but the Arctic's a different story another fascinating story as well mm. uh, story for another time but yeah <laughs> no there are people who really um, who really really specialist in these things mm. which um, can you think of an explainer you've written that you just really found ultra fascinating or that you really enjoyed researching for some reason um, I. I found it really interesting to do the one which which is which is in the anthology because what uh, what can dreams tell us about society? Mm-hmm. Um, that was that that was about um, that came about partly. I mean, most of these things have a they have something of a zeitgeisty thing about them, or they have a trigger, mm. you know, that gives you a reason to to be writing about them. And I suppose during COVID and with what every everyone had been going through people were talking a lot about dreams and there were some um you know on social media people were talking about what they'd been dreaming and there was twitter hashtags and things about covid dreams and that kind of thing yeah. so um at, i also at, uh, around the same time learned about a kind of uh practice of um collecting dreams if you like that came out of um the the discipline of organisational dynamics, mm-hmm. which so so 
this this is the kind of thing that like executives study you know this is the kind of thing that um people who sign sign up to learn about organizational dynamics might might find themselves talking about dreams as well you know so it wasn't it wasn't kind of woo-woo territory um but basically it's the idea that we're social beings so um we're social beings when we're asleep as well as when we're awake. So it wasn't it wasn't an explainer about what do your dreams mean. Mm-hmm. It was an explainer about how, a different way, a, a different way of looking at um, what we dream and that what we dream might, in a in a in a group sense, we might dream in certain themes. So when mm-hmm. humans are going through a time like um, COVID or it happened during Brexit. Um, these these um, experts in this field kind of study what people are dreaming and um, everyone shares what they're dream. I went to the thing called a dream matrix. So this was my kind of my research. I went to a, a very, you know, um, straight down the line, fascinating, matter of fact, um, thing called a dream matrix where everyone just gets, like, because it was COVID, it was international, it was mm. on Zoom, but everyone said what they dreamed the night before. People said what they associated with those dreams and someone was taking notes. And then uh, this went on for a couple of months, every, you know, every so often. And then you, when you look at all of this at the time, and as the experts say, at the time it just seems like this is just a, a very kind of curious jumble of things, but mm. patterns start to emerge over time. Mm. Hmm. So... Mm. Uh, yeah, it was one of the one of the experts called it this kind of subterranean in the mud sort of stuff that mm. you know the kind of stuff that's just below the surface of our consciousness. So there's lots of different topics like why is Jakarta sinking? Yeah. <laughs> why is there a boom in dinosaur fossils? Yeah. Um, why do we have leap years? But I just want to come back to the thing that piqued your interest. You said you kept hearing the term quantitative easing. And so you've yeah. got one in here called what is quantitative easing. And so to a journalist like yourself, so this was – Shane Wright, who wrote it, but yeah. obviously you've edited it, and you know, like if you were approaching what is quantitative easing, uh, where would you start with that? Because a lot of people, a lot of the feedback I get when people think of a topic is, I just don't even know where to start. It seems really second nature to you as a journalist, but if you could just break it down, if you were told today, write a story on on what is quantitative easing, what would you do? Well, well, part of the thing is why is it it unusual? Why is it different? Mm -hmm. Um, So... There's, there was something about it that got enough conversation happening about it that meant that it was, uh, uh, they used the term unconventional, it's unconventional monetary policy. So um, so part of it was um, why, why we, like, firstly, what does it mean? That's always the best place to start. Mm. What does this word mean? Yes. Um, doesn't matter what you know once you've singled something out um why do cicadas sing at dusk well let's first just let's just get get down for the record what's a cicada yeah okay (laughs) yeah same with quantitative easing just just what what the term means but then also where where it's come from and then where it fits in the scheme of things so it kind of has to be you know what would normally happen in the world um when people are running economies what would normally happen and banks are doing what they do and then what's different about this and 
and then you just have to go behind it a bit and why, why, you know, it's all, it's the why, why are banks doing this now and mm. why is this happening now? And well, and anyway, is, does it work? Um, mm. So in a way, I mean, it really is kind of like a conversation conversation even if you're having a conversation with yourself but if you were sitting around having a conversation with friends I reckon yes and you had a topic I reckon you know you'd inadvertently come up with a bunch of really good subheads for an explainer yes yes so have you has that happened to you where you've been at the pub or at a dinner party where the conversation has made you go ding I think that's gonna be a good explainer oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, look it happens or it happens quite a bit um and sometimes, you know, you can be on high alert and things go ding and you go away and think, nah, I don't know. But other times, um, I'm just trying to think of an example, though. Mm. I mean, the classic the classic one for me was um, from a personal experience where uh, I had, where I'd been present when when a relative, a relative had died. So this was not the pub, but this is, so this was not like no. a, a light social scene, but it did, mm. it did. It was it was kind of a, a moment where that came right out of personal experience. Where then um, I, I I went away from that experience, and I just look, things happened, and I just didn't really understand. Underst- I didn't really understand what what had what I witnessed, I suppose, in some ways. Mm. Um, but um, and and so I, I commissioned. Um, a fantastic writer, Sophie Aubrey, to to just set out um, what what happens as we die, um, mm. and and from the point of view of and, and and she wrote it from the point of view that it's and the experts said that you know it's not a medical problem to die, um, mm. it's something that happens um, mm. even though it can, you know. So um, so that's how that one came about and then it's obviously not the kind of thing that everyone sits up and says you know um gee I don't know it had a mix it had like we weren't sure how it would go but but the upshot was that um it's it's one of our most read pieces of all time that piece wow Mm. yeah it was hugely popular we got a huge response and I guess um it was because question came up and there really wasn't there weren't there weren't too many answers um to be found about it you know there weren't and it was it was partly the way that you know the way that Sophie did it where you know she talks about how also how to be with someone who's who's dying so it's kind of helpful and that's Mm. important too that you're writing things that are you know helpful in some way um and um uh yeah. So what's 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 the most challenging thing or the hardest thing about writing an explainer? A good explainer. Well, I mean, you know, in a in a busy newsroom, I guess um, you know it, it's finding finding the time for mm. for really really busy reporters to actually um, be able to because it does take a bit of time to just set it all out and follow up on all the detail. Mm. Um, but when I but th- when I think about it, I was thinking about this the mm. other day. I think in some ways, um, it's probably um, just checking that you're actually that you are actually explaining. Yeah, or, that you are really explaining it. Yeah. Um, I had it with um, this. I, I, well, I 
Yeah, I did a, an explainer on reverse swing, which is to do with cricket. And cricket is not my... Oh. <laughs> I kind of like tennis, but cricket's not my usual... It's not my okay. area of expertise. Uh-huh. And um, so reverse swing is a thing that, that bowlers do and it, and it creates a very surprising effect where the ball does something that it's not meant to do. Okay. And it's one of those things that um, people who, who love cricket kind of know about but I asked a couple of friends and said you know do you know do you know how reverse swing works and they're like oh yeah 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 and and this is a classic explainer thing they go oh yeah 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 well it's the uh you know it's the way you uh uh and then you know it all it all falls apart really quickly and they say I'll just look it up on wikipedia (laughs) so um I ended up um helping uh cricket writer uh Greg Baum with a bit of research in, into the fluid mechanics side of this. I mean, Greg Baum's, you know, a, a brilliant writer and an yes. expert in his field. But I, I was just um, doing a little bit of help on the on the fluid mechanics side of things because this is something that scientists look at, you know. How, yeah, right. how does a cricket ball fly through the air in a way that seems like it should go one way but then it goes the other way? Okay. And so, yeah, I spent... <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said to I said to my boss at one stage, you know, this is this is really this is really com- complex stuff. You know, this is, you know, it was kind of like a, a cry for help or something. <laughs> I said, I, we've been through two sessions now on the whiteboard. I'm trying to get my head around. And he and he just said, look, nuclear fusion's complex, but uh, it can be explained. So <laughs> so just keep going. Is, is it why they had Sandpaper Gate? I know nothing about cricket. It's related to that. Yeah, it's related right. to, to the ball being rough on one side and Which is why the they keep side. rubbing it on their pants. That's that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. On their zips, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, there you okay. go. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> see, I just explained it. There you go. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, in terms of... What do you enjoy most about being National Explainer Editor? Um, I think it's the, uh, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. It's the freedom to range across subjects. Mm. So I can work with reporters in all sorts of different areas of the newsroom, which is just... You must be great to bring to pub trivia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I'm a bit more of a... I think I'm a bit more of a question asker than one of those people who <laughs> who knows all the answers. I'm actually not that great at trivial pursuit. I don't know. That's the paradox. But um, yeah, so um, I think that um, it's also because I like reading things in depth, really, and I like yeah. getting, getting to the to the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. So um, I. I just like I don't like jargon and I don't like reading things and mm. coming away with that kind of static in the back of my mind mm. and and it's just really it's just really satisfying to read a nice in-depth read about something it doesn't have to be a PhD I don't want to you know I don't want it to be to go on forever and ever um, but I, I just I guess I enjoy the opportunity for storytelling as well um, yes and that's that, the key that's the key word isn't it is that you do feel when you've read something that ha- is uh, fully f- fleshed out 
and you really do feel satisfied. You feel completely, that's that's the word for it. Um, and, and it's such a great feeling when you've read something like that. So I'm going to end with a very, with the most important question of all, of course, which is what is it like to be chased by a cassowary? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I look, it's not much fun, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think we, we, we spoke to someone who said that the sound is the first thing you hear. It's a very strange, prehistoric-y, oh. uh, rumbling uh, sound. Um, and then the bird fluffs up its feathers. And um, and this is all, of course, not a random thing. This is because you've done something, yes. you know, inadvertently or not. So I, I just want to put that out there. This is this is not an, an anti-cassowary piece by any measure. It's more a... <laughs> don't get into this situation but anyway um yeah the birds will protect their chicks you know and they fiercely and so uh it will come after you and they can't fly but they run really really fast so um Mm. you know if there's nothing between you and the bird you've really got to leg it and uh, (laughs) this guy he does describe an indiana jones kind of maneuver that he does to uh, make it back to his car oh Um, my god yeah Yes, hopefully no one is going to be in that situation. So, of course, the answer to that and many other um, really interesting questions are in this book edited by Felicity Lewis, What's It Like to be Chased by a Cassowary? Fascinating Answers to Perplexing Questions. Thank you so much for your time today, Felicity. Pleasure. All right, there you go. Felicity Lewis and a very cool book, What's It Like to Be Chased by a Cassowary? Because, <laughs> of course, you've always wanted to Something know. I've always wondered, yes. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week? Um, what am I doing? Well, I am, as I said earlier, I've been working on a whole bunch of new book lists for Your Kids Next Read. Yes. Um, so we're, we're posting, we're rolling those out. So I'm kind of in the process of doing that. Um, and so they're really interesting, you know, because they're at the end of last year. I did a, uh, you know, a bit of a survey on the in the group, uh, which is the Facebook community. Your kids next read, come join us if you're um, looking for great books for kids. Um, we uh, asked for the, you know, their number one their number one recommendation of books for certain age groups, so naught to eighteen months, two to four, you know, blah blah blah, through the uh-huh, up yeah. to fourteen. Um, and this is a compilation of those lists. Like this is, is is me going through all of those recommendations, putting them together, and and creating an actual recommendations list for them. So it's a great mm. starting point for people coming to the group. And we do them about once every, I don't know, eighteen months to two years to kind of refresh, mm. you know, the, yes. the content that we have. So we've still got the older ones there because, of course, recommendations from a couple of years ago are still great recommendations. Um, yes. And then we've also got newer ones so that the you know the books that have come out in the last couple of years also um, get a go. So they're you know they're they're a good uh, good thing. They take me a bit of time, um, but I think they're worth doing. So I'm working on that. I'm putting together ideas for new stories, mm. and I'm wrangling my children. Oh, yeah. You know, that's what I do, time. right? Mm. What about you? It's, what are you doing? Um, I'm celebrating that of the four boys who live across the road, one of them's gone to boarding school. Ooh. So, <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> 
Is he in year nine by any chance? I feel like I year nine so. is a prime time when when, when, <laughs> when parents just want to ship their kids off at the door. I can I can say this only because I have one in year nine, so I know what it feels like. Oh, there is a, a year time. nine amongst them, but I'm not sure which one. Um, yeah. uh, so there's that. There is also um, I'm working with the um, fabulous creative writing director Pamela Freeman on a course in historical fiction, Ooh. and it's so interesting. You know, just all of the resources and all of the places and all of the things that you find out about, you know, what poo smelt like in 1830. <laughs> oh. Is that is bit, seriously? That's the example that you want to share here. That's my favorite example. Do you know? I'm... <laughs> can I can I just say on the subject of that? So uh-huh. speaking of your kids next read, somebody somebody mm-hmm. randomly asked the question, um, saying that their four year old or five year old or whatever it was really likes you know books with with poo in okay. them. And yeah. could anybody recommend any? Oh, you know, she yeah. gave us a list of four or five. Could anyone recommend any others? And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh no, brace yourself, lady. Because <laughs> I reckon she had 200, no. 220 odd um, comments, repla- no. uh, recommendations, all different books within the space of about three hours. Oh my like, God. honestly. But I also, I had to laugh because, you know, as a children's author, it, uh, it's not hard to find a book like like that. Like farts mm. and bums and poos mm. are pretty much mm. everywhere to be seen. So yep. I was just like, really? Okay. Yep. Brace yourself. <laughs> That's a great list, you know. Oh, it's is it? Yes. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, as I said, I don't think anyone really needs a list of them because I, you can't actually – Every single month there's almost new releases in that area and you can't really walk into the children's section of a bookshop without falling over many, many options. Anyway. The number of people who send me books on poo. Well, this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, can we maybe move on to something else? No, Although because I, did... I, I, lo- I giggle every time. I love it every time. Yes. Anyway. See? And therein right, lies sorry, the problem. Let... <laughs> I forgot how we even got onto this. Historical fiction. You oh, were yeah, talking about fiction. the fact that you're okay. working on a very serious yeah. course yes. on historical fiction. <laughs> Somehow we got onto Okay. Somehow There's we've gone down a that lot road. of other stuff that's in this course apart from that. You know, it's about creating characters. It's about, you know, your scene. It's about the setting. But anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm in the middle of that. And um, you, you might remember last week I mentioned it was my 10% week. So oh, I yeah. was going to go? do all my things that were just at the last 10%, you know, because they were still yeah, kind of yeah. done at 90%. Yeah. The client or the customer or the person is happy, but I just had to tie things up. And um, what I learned <laughs> from focusing on the last 10%, which I did, and I did it quite industriously, is that often, um, well, in fact, almost all the time, the last 10% takes almost as long as the first 90%. So you think you're just going to tie these little things off, and some of them you do, sure, but I have barely made a dent, I ha- and I've worked on it, like, considerably, considerably. So there's going to be more of that. There we go. Right. So do you know what I always find? Can I just say? Doing stuff. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I often find that the last 10% takes as long because often with me the last 10% relies on someone else. Someone oh, else's yes, input. Oh, yes, there's that too. 
Yeah. And so I'm, you know, often I go to do whatever it is the last 10% and realize that I've been waiting on some other thing that I haven't got yeah. that I then need to chase. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I did my bass this week, so I'm pretty excited by myself, speaking of 10%, Ooh. speaking of jobs that sit there forever and you ignore until you have to. But anyway. Mm. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Um, all, right, all right. On that so cheery we, note. Yes. <laughs> where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter or Instagram or over at ValerieKoo.com. You'll also find me sitting in front of Netflix with my current obsession, which is so bizarre that I just stumbled on this. Well, actually, my partner put it on and we've become obsessed with the show called Blown Away. I don't know if you've seen this, Alison. I looked it up. I looked it up because I saw you talking about it on Facebook and I thought that looks right that looks right up my alley right there. <laughs> Have you watched it? Not yet, but I'm keen. Oh. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a reality <laughs> show. It's a competition. It sounds so bizarre on glass blowing. But it is strangely mesmerizing, addictive and inspiring. So there you go. Um that's what I'm up to season two, but I have to say, woe is me, Al, woe is me, because I finished season one and I was so intrigued by the final, you know, the final finalists that I Googled them. I wanted to know where are they now? And the internet screamed at me, the winner of season two. I was so. Oh no. I know. I, I, I cannot tell you the feeling <laughs> that washed over me when I, when I read that. But anyway, I'm still watching season two, trying to pretend that I don't know. Trying to pretend that you never saw the spoiler. Spoilers are interesting, aren't they? Anyway. Uh, We must end this episode. Thank you so much. We're wittering. It's time to go. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.